Are you critically insane, have a lot of excess money, or even better, both? Then you can support this podcast by clicking on the ACAR support button. You can give as rarely and as little as you want, which, judging by the quality of this, I'm sure you're wanting to do. Hello, and welcome to a PhD Student Reads episode 25. Did you know that 25 is the sum of five consecutive single-digit natural odd numbers? So if you add 1, 3, 5, 7 and 9 together, you will get 25. You can try that on your calculators at home. Rodrigo, what do you think of this mathematical fact? Um, it is something that I would not have figured out by myself, but I do I do like it. Uh, I, I've always enjoyed that 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 equals 10. That's always mm-hmm. been something solid. I guess like 0 plus 1 plus 2 plus 3, 3 plus 4 would still equal 10 too. But yeah, good to know this other one too. I'll keep it in my back pocket whenever I want to impress absolutely no one. At, uh... <laughs> mathematicians, if you're meeting mathematicians when you're out But I feel like house. they would also be more impressed. Like they know real math in a way ah, that like what true. I'm telling them is not yes. at the level. But yeah, I'm a big fan of math. question that you don't then know the answer to. I also enjoyed that you guys over there say maths plural, which is probably the right way because it is mathematics. I think even here we say that. But like when we abbreviate it, we do just say like singular math. It's interesting. I suppose it's like a language. They say math, maths, mathematics is a language. You don't Mm -hmm. pluralize languages. You don't say I speak French or something. So (laughs) perhaps it's perhaps that's the logic that you uh, folk over there prescribe to. Maybe. Um, Have you seen the movie Mean Girls? Yes, I have seen the movie Mean Girls. There is a part where uh, the main character, Katie Heron, says something about how, like, math is cool because it's universal. Like, it's the same wherever you go. And that, I mean, I had not put that into my own thinking before that mm-hmm. moment. But when she said it, it was like, that's why I like math. And because I had, like, I was born in Peru. I started school, however, in Canada, in English. Mm-hmm. Um, so then when I moved back into Peru, like, math was, like, one of the few skills that really translated well. Like, it was the one thing where I was still really good. Like, I was really good when I was in school in Canada, and then when I went to Peru, I was still really good at math. So that's always been been my thought about it. I see. There's a reason I do biology. Maths is a very limited <laughs> uh, limited pool. It's like, oh, can you times and or divide by relatively simple numbers, usually 10, it's like, yeah, I can do that. So maths for me is a necessary tool for uh, for uh, general studying. Other people that are probably good at maths are the people that invented the website twitter.com and uh, you can use those math skills to follow the show at PhD Reads on Twitter and use other en- engineers that design podcast listening apps to uh, like, share and subscribe wherever it is you listen to podcasts spoilers ahead just i'm getting that out right away now because the date is it is this currently the 6th of march 2022 so the batman is is out and it will be discussed right now is that that was your spoiler warning (laughs) the batman is out rodrigo what did you think let's go top level what did you think of this three hour long film the batman is a good movie that makes as strong of an argument as I've seen from a superhero movie that uh, for its length, mm-hmm. its length time, but I would still say not a perfect argument that you could probably still find some places where maybe you should have cut a little bit more mm, fat. I, I think the the actors do a stellar jobs to varying degrees. Um, I think my high level negative, I would say, is that uh, there's a meme, you may have seen it around, where it's like Dr. Manhattan, and he's saying, like, I'm eight years old, the year is 1989, and I'm watching, like, a dark Batman movie, I am now 22 years old, and the year is 2005 or something, and I'm watching a dark Mm -hmm. Batman, and it's like, now I'm 40 years old, (laughs) and the year is 2022, and I'm still watching a dark Batman. Yeah, it's like, they, they... Batman is a weird balance where it's like he, he is like the noir detective with no yeah. powers, so he's very grounded. But at the same time, some of his most iconic enemies, like Poison Ivy, you know, like mm-hmm. they have no space in in this one, and they yeah. haven't had space for in in a while. And so I don't know what the path is going forward. But I guess if like if that's the part of Batman that you want to see explored one day, I think that that's not what you're gonna find here. It is kind of like. 
in the vein of a Nolan thing, but I think yeah. like Nolan cared a lot more about Bruce Wayne, whereas uh, Matt Reeves, who's the director of this one, almost exclusively cares about uh, Batman, mm -hmm. the alter ego, right? I would agree. I think Bruce Wayne is very, as Bruce Wayne is in it, very little uh, compared mm -hmm. to his alter ego. I thought it was great. I think it will take some thinking as to whether it's my favourite Batman film yet. Having I saw it yesterday, so I'm still possibly on the high. So mm -hmm. you know, after the after my thoughts have settled, will it be as good as the '89 or the Dark Knight? Who knows? Uh, but just I thought it was. I think some. I think I put on Twitter a tour de force from almost everyone involved. I don't think there was any casting that I was like hmm, would have maybe gone with with someone else. I thought it was much more of a detective comics film rather than a Batman film. It's very much Batman. There's not really that many fight scenes in it. He's much more doing thinking and solving puzzles. It's like this is the Batman that you usually only see in in comic books, preferably more likely detective comics. And uh, that was good to see. That's something that sets it out. I mean, Christian Bale did a bit of detective work. However. Robert Pattinson here is doing a lot more detective work than uh, right. I think all the Batman films have come previously. I liked this is by far as, we, as you mentioned there. It's the most grounded I think of all the Batman films. Batman doesn't drive a tank. He doesn't. He has a mm -hmm. car, just a, not a big car with a flame jet out the back. He doesn't even live in Wayne Manor. I think where Alfred gets gets yeah. blown up. He's like on a tower somewhere. Yeah, but uh, some weird gothic tower. Yeah. I was like, "What? What was that choice?" I, I'm not sure. But um, unless maybe Wayne Manor is now Wayne Tower, and it's just a, like a church cathedral sort of sort of place. Well, well, have you read um the Snyder Snyder yeah. Batman? If I'm not mistaken, and it's been a while since I've read it, so I may I may be wrong here, but I think the whole thing about the Court of Owls is like some floor in a tower yes. that was not previously like known mm -hmm, or blah mm -hmm. blah blah, right? Yeah, like so I'm thinking happen. maybe that's why they threw him into a tower because they want to bring the Court of Owls later on. I mean there's also teases in this movie, uh, to hush yes. and like to the Waynes not being as clean as one might mm -hmm. think and so on. So I think that maybe in the near future, that is where they want to go. And so maybe that's the reason in by putting him in a tower. But just like even the decor inside, I'm like, what year is yes. this? Like, who is the interior design person here? Like, even if Bruce Wayne is detached from any desire of it, like, I think, like, Alfred could maybe, uh, I don't know, like, replace some of the weird gargoyle structures yeah, inside. Like, with, know, he's like, a normal man. He couches? lives there as well. Yeah. And they have a maid. There's a maid in this one. She's yeah. like, dusting the the creepy gargoyles that they just have around around the home but uh yeah yeah i thought it was very good very good indeed yeah i mean i i think like if i'm gonna get into the minor nuances of like where it fell a little bit short of a perfect five out of five mm. for me i mean first of all I, I i don't know if i'm wrong here but how did you feel about like the back costume um, Do you feel like it's a step up or i quite liked it until i realized that the mask was leather when he takes, I was like, "Oh, how's that protecting you, really, in any way?" I quite liked the yeah, the, uh, like... the batarangs, the one batarang that never gets thrown. The one is on his on his his, his chest. chest. That was quite cool, different, and I quite liked yeah. that some of the functions of the suit were built into the suit. So there's a section where he leaps off a building and has like a wingsuit, and it's just like a big zip that he pulls and it folds mm. around him. So yeah, but yeah. I don't think it's my favorite. I think like my my issues with it were were twofold. One, I think is a functional addition, which in which is that the cowl is a very distinct part than the cape, which ends up giving the cape a little bit of a collar. Mm -hmm. And so I was looking at it and I was like, this feels like a little bit more Doctor Strange than Batman to me. But I think the main reasoning for that may have been giving uh, Robert Pattinson a lot more ease since he is spending so much yes. time in the Batman costume, giving him a lot more ease to do what he needs to do with his head in terms of like physical acting to to be able to continue. Right. Because I know like, that was a big issue for Michael yes. Keaton when he was uh, the original Batman. He could not turn left or right. Like he had to move his yep. entire body to face that direction. And the other part is just the shape of the cowl itself. It seems to be very top-heavy. I don't know what the reasoning for that is, though. Like, I'm, I'm wondering maybe they had to fit in his yeah. hair. I'm, I'm not sure. But it's it, it 
it strikes me as like very bulbous at the top. So I, I that seemed just like a, it, it, it's like uh, the blue animated villain mastermind, yes. I think is his name or whatever, like or, or Mandark from from Dexter. Like that's kind of the shape that his hand ends up having because it's so bulbous at the top. So that was like one thing that I found a little bit distracting. I think like the other part where, where I would knock some points off of it. Um, and maybe this is different because I speak Spanish, but even in like the English version, he kept on saying like the riddles were like you had to have a, a bit of disbelief that people, you know, like that, that Batman was the only one solving yeah. a riddle that was fairly obvious the the line still, or that later on, like he kept on saying like uh, a rat with wings, that's a stooled pigeon or a penguin. And I'm like, at no point are you going to guess bat? Like, at this point, it's becoming, like, very yes. weird that you're not saying that a rat with wings is a bat. Because I think that's where most of the general population would mm-hmm. go first. And he is a Batman, right? So it's like, I I, I found that a weird uh, jump in, in, in logic that we were just kind of supposed to play along with. Like, I, I think that part is a little bit yeah. trickier, too, because it's like when you say somebody's really funny it's really hard to demonstrate that he's really funny if you've just said that he's, you know what I mean? So it's like putting in the work to making the Riddler um, like this incredibly intelligent mind that has these riddles that only somebody that's his equal, um, the Batman would be able to solve is, is tricky. Like I, I, but that's kind of where another part where it fell a little bit um, flat for me. And then just the, I don't know how you felt, but like the Bruce Wayne side of it, um, like there was some commentary about this when the trailer dropped about how he was emo. He was looking emo. And I was like, "Mm, well, maybe there's like reasonings behind it, but I didn't really see it. I feel like there was a lot of disregard in terms of like who Bruce Wayne was. Mm -hmm. And I think like on the one hand, it is cool to see them finally leaning a lot heavier into the detective side of Batman, the character. But I do think that as a comic book fan, like both of them are the character, right? Like Bruce Wayne, the millionaire and, um, and uh, Batman, the, the superhero, they are both who that person is. And I think that they have to work in a well-balance. And it's like, I could just never really figure out like who Bruce, Bruce Wayne is to himself and to the city. Like, you know, he, he looks incredibly disheveled, but it's been 20 years since his parents have died two years since he started being Batman. And so you would think like, okay, maybe he's been still so marked by his parents' death that he hasn't been able to move on. But at the point where there's conversation about who his parents were and what they did, he is completely blindsided by the circumstances around their death and so it's like well so was he obsessed with his parents mm-hmm. death or not right like the um there's there's a point where they talk about how bruce wayne hasn't been seen in society for i don't know so, so, like he doesn't have a presence right like his parents were charitable givers and basically since bruce wayne took over yeah. he's been nowhere and yet like there's cops that are like hey bruce wayne like so excited to see him and it's like okay well is he a recluse or is he like a person that is helping with, with money like the I, I think there's like some inconsistencies in who Bruce Wayne is as a character, but like you said, the majority of this person doesn't even really tackle with that, right? Like it's mostly just about Batman figuring it out. So that those parts seem like a, a, something could have been tightened a little bit and maybe made it like a perfect, perfect movie, but it's still really good. It's still well worth the Absolutely. price of admission. I think back to the, the riddle, then it eventually goes like, oh, it's a penguin. And it's like, oh, a falcon has wings. It's like, yeah, but that's not a rat in any way. <laughs> a rat with wings? Yeah. So it's just like I, I think that part was not as clever, and also like the 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 Spanish was killing me. Like the I couldn't even understand the URL they were saying, which was ratalada. I guess I don't know. It was funny. It was just it, the riddles. I guess again, it's kind of like it's hard to build up an expectation. It's you know another movie that does this. Zack Snyder's um, mm-hmm. Sucker Punch. I feel maybe I've mentioned this. I, I say this a lot. I use it as an example. Uh, they're, they're they keep on describing the main girl's character as like a brilliant dancer, a brilliant dancer. And then at some point they show her dancing and it's like, okay, this is not a brilliant dancer in any universe, let alone, you know, this one where you keep on building it up. So it's hard sometimes when you're building up that expectation of like in this one particular skill, they are amazing because then when you have to do it in in, in real time and show it, like it sometimes doesn't translate. And I think that was an issue with yep. the Riddler. I think my, I wasn't, I, I didn't understand why he looked like that. I think that was something I couldn't figure out. Yes, okay, he was never going to wear mm-hmm. like the Jim Carrey bright green question marks thing. But right. the, like the fact he's got like a face mask thing on, it's like I was expecting maybe his face mm-hmm. to be disfigured in some way and that was somehow to do with the maybe the the Wayne's had you know 
been implemented in disposing of chemicals or something and that had impacted him in some ways like no he, he yeah. just wears it for some reason with his glasses on the outside which i thought was slightly amusing especially because they're quite distinct yeah. these these big glasses that he has on <laughs> uh but i think my biggest issues lie with the selena kyle uh relationship like they don't mm-hmm. she's great zoe kravitz as as Selena Kyle. I think she's probably the best, my favourite uh, um, on-screen persona of of Catwoman. However, the two right. of them together, at one point they share this kiss. I was like, I don't think you you like each other, to be honest. I <laughs> but miss that bit. I saw there was some discourse on uh, Twitter this morning where it's like, oh, is it is it not a bit creepy that Bruce Wayne just stood opposite her? her apartment with some binoculars while she was getting changed. And I was like, well, it's like, oh, but she, you know, he was being a detective. It's like, well, he could have looked away. He's like, no, oh, whatever. It's just, just, a, just a film. Yeah. But uh, I did quite like maybe how all their relationships did it sort of boil down to one big event, which was, of course, the death of the Waynes. I'm glad we didn't see it for like the 600th time. There was no mm-hmm. pearls falling to the ground. Um, everyone knows these days how how the Waynes died, so I was good, glad to see that. But yeah, I couldn't quite even thinking about it now. Why was the Riddler so upset with the Waynes? He he was an orphan, right? Yeah, I think like the insinuation, and I don't know if this is me jumping to conclusions that he that he is maybe related or he became an orphan product of them killing that reporter. Like maybe that reporter is his dad, <laughs> but that wasn't explicitly said. But I I guess maybe I attributed that to him because it it's like yeah, why are you this upset about like that one event? Because I mean, the Waynes putting trying to put forward that money was kind of addressing that there was already yeah. rot before. Uh, the Waynes, right? So I don't know that they singularly caused the rest of the rod, but I don't know. Yeah, I, my sense is that the, the, they were insinuating that he was the son of that reporter that got killed. I should have. I think my everything with the Batmobile in it was my was my favorite. That whole chase with the penguin. The penguin himself was uh, Colin Farrell. If you if he if I didn't know that was Colin Farrell in advance, he didn't sound like Colin Farrell. He said he doesn't look like Colin Farrell. I thought the Penguin was great. I would have seen, I think, a whole film just with him without the Riddler would have been absolutely okay with with, with me. But that whole chase scene with the Batmobile going through the, the streets and down the down the motorway was, I think, one of the... Well, it was my favourite bit of the film, so therefore I guess it was probably my favourite Batmobile scene of all on-screen uh, Batman things. Yeah, I, I I will say I'm of two minds of that scene. I think it's, like, brilliant. And if you can suspend your disbelief, like, it is beautiful. It is exciting. It is, like, really action-packed. But then on the other hand, I live mm-hmm. right by the 401, which is, like, one of the worst highway traffic, uh, uh, traffic highways of North America. And so I'm looking at that highway, and I'm like, there's no <laughs> way you could do this. Like, there there's literally just no, like, there's too many cars. And it's, like, at some point when he jumps, like, you can see that at that point, they've just kind of given up on the extra cars. It's literally just the penguin car, penguin's car and uh, and the Batmobile behind. Because it's, like, yeah, at some point, like, you wouldn't be able to get that far at that velocity and and so on. But, um, you know, putting that aside, if you suspend your, your disbelief, it is, like, the best uh, action sequence that they've had with the Batmobile. Just in terms of the tech, though, it was a little weird. Like, I, I guess they wanted to... Sh- it was, like, a little bit of a year one. Mm-hmm. He's figuring stuff out. But um, at one point, when he gets onto the roof of... Uh, is it, I think, maybe the, the the police department? It seems like he's almost afraid of heights. Like, he looks down, and he's kind of, <laughs> like, like, gets shocked, and then he puts on his, like, squirrel uh, costume, which he then kind of clunkily... Uh, it, it's... The use of tech in this one is a bit odd, and I feel like it didn't add like i will say the batmobile obviously exciting but you could have done a lot of that with a motorcycle maybe i don't know but like the 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 gliding and then also like when he starts his batmobile does he like rev the engine and then like stop like stop it seemed like (laughs) odd like it was something a bit weird when he started and i was like are you trying to exemplify that he's just getting the hang of this like i wasn't yeah i think it's also like you know he has that back we talked about he has that battering on his it never throws it ever he takes it off once and he cuts through a, a wire and then put, puts it back. And he's like, yep, that's, that's, that. that's enough. That's enough of that for me. <laughs> the, I think worse, the yeah. effects-wise, when he's gliding, he's like, oh, 
I wouldn't maybe do those close-ups of his face. Those are a bit odd looking. Yeah. And I went to see it with a friend, and she was like, why did he fly under the bridge to hit that bus? Why didn't he just fly over it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, so the, the tech part, I guess maybe that is what they're trying to show, that he's like new to all of this. But at the same time, I think like you're trying to develop the, the, the detective part of Batman. It requires like a higher level of intellect in that, yeah, maybe he should go over the bridge instead of slamming himself under it. I mean, it's a good but, thing uh, yeah. that the criminal underworld of Gotham never aim for the face. Like, he gets shot in the chest an extortionate amount. <laughs> a bomb explodes right in front of him, and his, like, his chest. That was something I thought at the time. The Riddler's not good. making these very good bombs. Alfred survives, and so does this Bridgeway. It goes up. He flies backwards through that church. He's like, yep. I'm, I'm. I mean, he gets knocked out, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess one last question for me to you on my end. Uh, do you think that the Riddler knows who hmm. Bruce Wayne is? See, I thought they were going that way with the... It's not really the interrogation, I mm-hmm. suppose, but the conversation they have together where once, he, once he's in prison, he says Bruce Wayne like 50 times in that conversation. Yeah. And I think Bruce Wayne himself thinks that he knows just from the sort of reaction that he makes. But then as the conversation continues, it sounds like, oh, no, he's just got like a vendetta against Bruce Wayne. Because he was an orphan that was rich. Again, going back to why I don't really understand why he, uh, he's not Enigma, but the Riddler hates the Wayne so much. And it's like, so I'm going to go with no, I think. Because I feel like by the end he would have said. I agree. I, I think at some point I was, like, obviously they make you think that he does, and then they kind of imply that he doesn't. He's kind of oblivious that he's mentioning Bruce Wayne to Batman. I did watch, there's this video, Screen Crush, his YouTube channel, Screen Crush, where they analyze things, and I think he's kind of implying that he does know, he just doesn't want to say it, because, um, you know, like, if everybody knows the answer to a riddle, it's worthless, blah, blah. But... As part of his plan, he was attempting to kill Bruce Wayne, but still future parts of the plan still involved Batman. So I think that's where, like, if he had, if he really knew, then what would have been the last part of his plan? Because, you know, like, he still wanted, like, uh, in that conversation, too, he's talking about how he sees them as, like, having worked together to do this. You know, there's still um, the last message in his apartment to Batman. And so if he had killed Bruce Wayne, like, with with the Alfred bomb, as he had attempted to do, then that's where that part would have ended, right? Like, he would have no longer seen Batman going around. So I don't think he knows who Bruce Wayne is. Unless he knew that his bombs aren't particularly very strong, and the bomb would have gone off in Bruce Wayne's face and he would have lived... (laughs) I think the bit that I thought yeah. was inadvertently funny was there's the section where, you know, Bruce is drawing out the map of Gotham with a, that white spray paint can and he pushes that massive table across the ground so then he can draw on the floor. So why can't you just do it on the table like a, like a normal, sane man? Because it's a giant table that he has to take his shirt off to push because it's so heavy. And he's like, nah, yeah. this this floor space... <laughs> is much more, much more important. I think the last thing to touch on is where do you think it will go next? There's clear setup for for the Joker because it can't be a Batman film without the Joker in it. Uh, and I wish there wouldn't be, you know? It's like we've seen so many good iterations of the Joker, like n- not that we we probably like Barry Keegan who's the actor who presumably is playing the Joker due to his mani- maniacal laugh at the end and him being a fairly high profile actor i'm sure he would do a great job but there's so much more that you can do without inviting the comparison of like oh how yeah. did it rank compared to Joaquin Phoenix or Heath Ledger or Jack Nicholson and it's like you did a good job with the Riddler picking a villain that wasn't Jim Carrey had done the right mm-hmm. thing for the movie that he was in, and obviously this is a very type of different movie. Um, but I think like maybe we, I, I that wouldn't have been my instinct. Like I, I was enjoying yeah. like seeing the references to Hush, um, to maybe uh, getting a sense that maybe there was some of this Court of Owls being brought in because I could I could see someone as Talon, like he he's mm-hmm. a physical villain. So, because again, I have a hard time imagining yeah. like 
Killer Croc. You know, like, it, are they going to do that? I don't think so. It doesn't seem likely that they want to kind of step into the more fantastical elements of the the Batman Rogues Gallery, right? Like, you know, would Pi- Poison Ivy come in and uh, and do like plant control things? I don't think so. Mister Freeze with like an ice gun. It doesn't yeah. seem like it can coexist in the same universe. So once you take that out, I guess it is kind of hard to figure out like how many villains we can use that are not like in that in that part of the Batman, right? And so I guess the Joker in that sense is the big question, the big name that comes to mind. But it's just like we've seen it so many times. It's kind of like the 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 death of um the parents, right? Like Maybe let's skip it for this gen until it's absolutely necessary. Like, let's lean into into Hush. Let's lean into um, yeah. uh, the Court of Owls. Let's lean into maybe exploring, like, Bloodhaven with Catwoman and, I don't know, maybe a Nightwing-type character or blah, blah, blah. So, I don't know. On the other hand, maybe they want to introduce, like, a, a Robin and get him killed by a Joker so then they can continue, like, all those other good storylines. Who knows? But I, I guess... I'm excited for the future of this franchise because this movie was really good. And also his like Planet of the Apes movies were really good. So I knew going in that I was very excited to see this one. But maybe like the Joker wouldn't have been my instinct to to take it yeah, to, I would agree. To take I would it there next. Preferred something because this, obviously we this is probably one of the most grounded Batman's ever had. You know, we I think there are so many villains out there, like especially like the C tier and below, that you could easily change in subtle ways. To have like a film about like, let's say for example, the Firefly is really just an arsonist. If you get rid of the flying around part, you know that could be, especially because this is a mm-hmm. a Batman that prefers to use his brain, I suppose, than actually fight. You go, like, oh, something about arson mm-hmm. or something that oh no, it's 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 the Joker. But hopefully, well, you know, there's no point suggesting that, uh, you know. Oh, it's going to be a big mistake doing the Joker here, because let's be honest, it probably won't be. It would just be nicer to see something else. No, yeah, he has a good trajectory. Mm-hmm. He has a good trajectory, and the Joker... Like, we've never... Well, we've almost never gone wrong with the Joker anyway, so I'm sure it'll be good. But yeah, like I agree, it would have been nice to see something else. Mm-hmm. And so we move from comic book films to actual comic books. Rodrigo, you are up first. Enlighten us with, with your monthly reading. Yeah, so this month I read uh, an image book by Brian K. Vaughn. Once again, I feel like at this point I'm slowly working through <laughs> the entire bibliography of Brian K. Vaughn. Uh, the art is handled by Cliff Chang. I believe the colors are handled by Matt Wilson. And then the letters are by Jared K. Fletcher. Uh, the book has 30 issues collected in six trade paperbacks i think there's also like bigger collections available um the the art team is the the creative team is consistent throughout throughout all the issues so that will remain the same um paper girl is set in the 1980s the late 1980s 1988 specifically um it is about 12 year olds i want to say maybe a little bit older i think maybe they mentioned it at some point i just can't remember but they are they're fairly young girls who um as the the title of the comic book would imply are paper girls they go out and and get a, a big load of newspapers delivered to their house they then divide that into the the house homes in their neighborhood that have subscriptions to that newspaper and so what we join kind of these characters on november 1st which they call hell morning um november 1st being the day after um halloween and so halloween can go late uh newspaper these paper girls have to get up early to do their their job and um so sometimes there's an overlap of these people that are too into the holiday that make their day their job more difficult and so that's kind of where where we join our main characters um we start off meeting aaron who is uh, an Asian girl. Um, She doesn't have many friends in in this place where she lives. She loves her sister, Missy. But beyond that, she doesn't have a lot more of a social um, network outside of that. Uh, She gets up being cornered by some of these like older kids that are like really into the Halloween spirit and making their, their life hell. And she gets rescued by three other paper girls who do their roots together because they know exactly what it's like to do this on November 1st. Uh, The characters are Mac, Tiffany, and KJ. 
um, they decide that they were they're gonna help out Aaron by joining her on a route, but then realize that if they do it, if all four do all four of the deliveries, then it's gonna take them too long, and so they decide to divide to two. Mac, who's kind of like the the more abrasive, like the aggressive, you know, she she uh, in the first issue um, in defending. Uh, Aaron against some of these like teen bullies she drops the uh, an f slur which I, i'm not sure if you'll get censored for this i won't say it <laughs> and I, that comes it becomes more important later on but you know like that's kind of the persona that she is she's like a tough girl she kind of says whatever she needs to she's the the first one to kind of pick a fight she's not afraid of these boys um tiffany is really really smart she's a bit of a tech person um she has walkie-talkies that she then divides among the group. And then KJ is, uh, you know, she's a, a lacrosse player or a hockey player. I can't remember which one she is. Yes, but she has like a a, a, a hockey stick type thing um, that she carries around. So that's kind of who they are in the beginning. As they start off on their day, they, they end up trying to follow uh, the bullies who then take one of their walkie-talkies uh, and they're trying to get it back. And in doing so, they head into a basement and they encounter a weird machine um they uncover it and they can't really tell what it is that you know at one point they kind of describing that it's maybe something um about the 50th anniversary of war of the worlds which was a radio show back then um mm -hmm. and it now is like a new tv show in in the late 80s and in exploring this machine they end up uh turning it on almost and then this this powerful light goes through them and that unknowingly to them changes them in a very uh significant and permanent way when they they go outside they encounter um these hooded people who speak a language that they simply cannot understand and um seem to be not of this place uh, not of this location i guess right like maybe not necessarily geographically but we quickly learn not of this time is what they are mm -hmm. Um, the one cool thing as they, as I guess the series develops and this starts out is that they end up dropping behind something that looks like a little bit of a square and that has a, an Apple logo on it. So we then find out that this is kind of almost like a, a telepathic iPod or iPhone <laughs> kind of thing. But the Apple uh, logo is interesting to kind of evaluate in the context of what is happening. A lot of this book has to do with the idea of the, the tree of knowledge and Eve eating the forbidden fruit, which was an apple, and then whether or not that changed our lives for the better or or not. This book is about time travel. It deals it in the, a back to the future type of way, whereas in like if you go to the past, like the past and the present and the future are all on one single string. And yeah. so whatever happens at the end happens. I guess Back to the Future isn't really like that because you can go to the back, back in time and like erase things from the future. So it's like a little bit different, but it's just like one linear timeline, yeah. not like multiple timelines. And so it also has to do a lot with like, you know, accepting a predetermined fate or thinking you have the ability to change it. Um, the it, Like I said, it's about time travel. And so these girls quickly and trying to escape these people that they encounter in their town um, end up time traveling. They first go to our modern age and realize that they've become separated. Uh, Aaron, Tiffany, and Mac um, are together. But KJ, the, the, the hockey slash lacrosse player, she's somehow gone somewhere else. Um, you know, uh, in, in escaping, they also meet some of these hooded figures and then they use a little uh, machine to speak Old English, as they call it. One of the characters explains um, that, you know, his boyfriend recently died and blah, blah, blah. And then you can see Mac again being uncomfortable with the idea of homosexuality, which again, a little bit obvious. But the foreshadowing here is that a lot of her discomfort from from her himself, her herself, uh, understanding what that means to yeah. to what she does. Um, anyways, they, they end up traveling to 2016. Like I said, they, they get separated. Uh, they divide even further when Erin, uh, the main character, um, encounters her modern day Erin. So uh, I guess like a 12-year-old encounters a 40-year-old and then they team mm -hmm. up to figure out what's happening. The machine seems to work with, team seems to sync with her, with 40-year-old Aaron, the little Apple machine. And then that's kind of how they figure out where they need to go next. Um, in doing so, they encounter a hockey stick kind of just floating there in the sky a little bit. And then when they pull it out, it says 
do not trust other Aaron, um, go to the fourth folding. And so the, the young Aaron, 12-year-old Aaron, pulls that out, reads it, and then is at a loss to, to know how to deal with that with 40-year-old Aaron. But before she can figure that out, we have a third Aaron jump into the Ooh. timeline and telling her that she needs to come with her and blah, blah, blah. And so I think she realizes at that point that maybe the other Aaron that she shouldn't trust is that one, who is also <laughs> looking 12 years old or so, but is from the far, far future. And so she ends up uh, trusting 40-year-old Aaron, who then, you know, they all kind of travel once again in time. And this time they go to like the prehistoric age where they meet uh, a woman named Wari and her son, I think it's like Japo or something, something like this. Uh, they, they bring with them one of those little translating things that like the future people had used to be able to understand them. And so that's how they're able to communicate with the prehistoric person who, again, does not speak the same language. And I think that's kind of like uh, a big sticking point in the story that Brian K. Vaughn is trying to sh show that like how we're becoming disconnected to who we were as time goes forward with every new technology, every new leap and so on. Um, in the past, they end up meeting the first uh, time traveler, the creator of time travel. And uh, you know, they, they have a bit of an adventure. I don't want to go too much into spoilers, but they end up leaving once again. And then this time they end up going into different parts but uh, the creator of time travel, Wari and Japo, all stay stay behind. Um, this time, when they divide once again, they go into the far future, I believe, or is it the year two thousand? I think they do two things. Wait, let me just check real quick. Oh, this time when when they travel once again, they end up going to the year two thousand, the Y two K era, right before. Um, I guess like 19 or January 1st, 2000. And so a lot of people right. uh, are, are thinking that this is the end of the world and so on. They quickly realize that in the newspapers that they've been delivering, there's been some messages about what's been happening all along. And so, and so they go and visit like the, the creator of the comic book strip that has these hidden messages. Uh, they fi find out that she's also been in communication with some of these time travelers and she gives them some of the context of what's been happening with the time travelers. There seems to be what they call the old generation, which is still far, far in our future. And it's the people who first encounter the idea of time traveler and time travel and decide that under that are kind of um, absolutists about it, right? Like under no circumstance, can you go to the past and change what is happening or should you rather, I guess. Mm hmm. And people that are a little bit from their future, even that are like, no, that doesn't make sense. Like if there are things that we can improve, we should go back and change them and, and use uh, time travel to the benefit of society. And so um, they end up having this war almost that 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 somehow drags these girls in at some point. And it's really interesting, I think, the concept of, like, what what is the right thing to do? It's kind of like, oh, if you had a gun and you could go back in time, like, would you, should you kill somebody like Adolf Hitler and mm -hmm. so on, right? And so this, this kind of poses, like, the two thoughts of, like, what you should do with time travel against each other and creates this war. Um, throughout their, their adventures, they find out that at some point, um, Mac, who is like the strong, strong, strong-willed girl, she's gonna die from leukemia. Like that's uh, something that happens shortly after they go back. And so again, it's the concept of like, is everything predetermined, or are there things that you can do to change your future? Yeah. Um, and escaping the year two thousand once again through more time travel and more iterations of Aaron and like all these characters that keep on jumping in and out, they travel even further into the future. Um, and at that point, like they're trying to figure out how to get back to 1988, but they also have conversations about what else can they do. They find out that leukemia is no longer an untreatable thing in that time. And so they could try and save Mac. And so they end up dividing um, KJ and Mac go on one end and uh, KJ kind of comes to realize that she herself is a lesbian. And so she tells Mac this and Mac once again, at first is like very, um, apprehensive to deal with any of that you know calls her a pervert or so on and and uh they just tells her to just focus on what they want to do which is to try to save mac from leukemia when um when they they get there they end up figuring out that she didn't die of leukemia just at the time we didn't have words for what she died from but she died from a disease that is specific to time travel so in the future even though they have cured made leukemia a curable and treatable disease 
um, the time travel disease that she actually will die from isn't. And right. so that there is no way that they can help her in the future uh, by going back and, and changing things. So uh, with that in mind, it, it th these girls in general are deeply affected by what, what, the, what they learn, you know, like realizing that things may not be um, possible to be changed mm -hmm. and knowing that they're alive in the future makes them uh, risk takers to a point where they're endangering their own lives because they think like, I can't die in this moment. Yeah. I know that I exist in the future. Um, you know, same for Mac, knowing that she dies in the future kind of changes the way that she thinks like, what is the point of me doing anything now if it's inevitable that I will die once I get there? Um, it all ends up wrapping up in a very neat way i don't want to go into too much detail about it so that in case anybody wants to check it out but again multiple iterations here of like kj's and tiff's and aaron's and you know it's time travel so it can always get a little bit confusing but uh the double-sized issue with which brian k vaughn wraps up his his series first of all i want to say i want to appreciate that the fact that this was just 30 issues um i think more i would encourage more comic book creators to kind of wrap things up pretty soon you know like i it, it was very tight it, at no point did it feel like it was dragging but the the last issue is is great um i think if you were wondering where brian Kavon lies in his question about like can we change the future or is it predetermined the answer will give you um that he gives you a clear answer by the end of how he feels so overall i think an incredibly strong series like the art is by cliff chang who did some wonder woman issues mm -hmm. and i will say it's like really really clean like you can understand everything that's happening in his panels it's still very like beautiful to look at the the, the faces are great they're expressive the coloring is also brilliant um i don't know if you have the chance to see the the treatment that the trade paperback receives in terms of color but it's kind of like this 80s neon kind of thing and it looks really really good so i mean just overall a great series i would definitely definitely recommend it to anybody that wants to check. like if you're a fan of sci-fi or a fan of brian cape on i think you will not go wrong by checking this one out that, that was good to know because that was going to be what i was going to ask because they are selling the omnibus like there was all the thing collected together in one big book uh, at the local bookshop here and every time i go in there it's like mm. i do like brian yeah Kavon. it's Maybe good i will say that I think, like, it's also, I have only read it through once, but I think, like, if I read it through again, knowing what I know about the rules of time travel and who these characters end up being and, like, the things that they know, I think there's, like, so much already kind of, like, hidden in that. So I think I would enjoy it even more on a second read. Oh, that's, that's good to know. Brian K. Vaughan never disappoints. I will say, unfortunately, there was been no Brian K. Vaughan for me this month. I did order the next three volumes of Why the Last Man, and three and four came almost immediately. But number two mm -hmm. took about three weeks to come. I was like, well, <laughs> I, I'm not going to read these two that are sat here in front of me, because I would have missed five issues worth of of the right. of I feel like almost at this point though and it's it's too late now if you've gone into but I feel like it would have been beneficial to do like a bigger collection because maybe in the long run it would have been cheaper than than the individual mm -hmm. volumes but yeah I, I'm interested then to hear what you ended up reading this month so uh, I covered more Batman and also Kingsman Kingsman by uh, Mark Miller you talked about Mark Miller last month uh, mm -hmm. so yeah I'm starting to think it is these new glasses because once again, I have read more this month than I did in any of the previous months or bar last month. Last month seemingly was the exception, but then again, these Batman books are long, so perhaps overall, in overall page count, perhaps I'm still batting above above average than I was before. And so these Batman books, we're on to the next part. The next part of the whole No Man's Land story. This is Batman Road to No Man's Land Volume 2, the final volume before actual No Man's Land. We've we've had the cataclysm, the road is now at an end. Next month, No Man's Land Volume 1 will commence. This is the one I have in front of me. It's the 2016 published uh, collection edition that I have. It's obviously DC Comics. Uh, and as before, it's a large creative team, so I'm not going to go through everybody. If you listen to the past two months, it'll be those same people again. Uh, I will say, much like last month, it is these uh, mid-2010 collected editions that seemingly do not credit letterers or colorers on the first page. So do sort that out. <laughs> 
DC next time you're publishing the whole road to uh, No Man's Land story because, of course, letterers and colorists are very important. But the book itself. So of the three books of this whole story that I've read so far, this is by far and away the best of the bunch. And why is that? It's because there's an actual plot. Now, I'm a fan of procedural television. You know, I watch and continue to watch CSI, your light-hearted murder shows like Monk or Diagnosis Murder or X-Files or whatever. Right? So I don't mind a week-to-week self-contained story with no serialised overarching plot. Absolutely fine. However, what's been bothering me about these these No Man's Land stories is they're very much like the week-to-week stories we get in in uh, in, in uh, procedural television, but just not as gripping in, in any way. They're very much all slices of life going on during uh, the earthquake or post the earthquake or near around the earthquake, you know, focusing on various members of, of the Bat family, rogues and all of that. So, you know, we're seeing a lot uh, in in these books, a lot of different characters, and, and that's always good. I just don't think the stories themselves in these short issues are are as good as they could be. But here in Road to No Man's Land Volume 2, we start to to get change of that. There is still these small, these short stories focusing on various members of the Bat family, but there's also an overarching plot. And this overarching plot focuses mostly on uh, on Bruce Wayne rather than, than Batman and on Azrael, a, uh, one of the more 90s characters, I would say, especially here in, in, in how he looks. And they are going off to Washington, D.C. to attempt to get Gotham the financial aid it, it desperately needs. So uh, Asriel is sent there in, in advance for uh, protecting uh, some sort of senator that's, that is uh, willing to, to fight for Gotham and get Gotham the, the money, the financial aid that it needs, whereas all the other senators and politicians seemingly are willing to let Gotham just collapse and be... Funnily enough, made a no man's land. Just, it's just a nothing. All contact will be severed with Gotham. All routes in that Gotham will be shut off, and that's seemingly okay for 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 a, for a government to do. Which I understand this is fiction, but in real life, I'm pretty sure that's never happened. You know, you've got a natural disaster somewhere, a hurricane, an earthquake. No government has ever gone. Well, can't do anything about that. Cool. Oh well. Uh, but here in uh, the world of DC, uh, that seemingly is is okay. Uh, however, there is you know some other other players. So uh, this this is this interesting new villain that is seemingly behind it or behind not so much the earthquake. Remember we talked about how the Quake Master was was not a real a real threat. He was just a puppet, uh, quite literally. Um, this Nick Scratch, he was. Used to be somewhat of a of a nerd, a bit of a loser at school, and he, and he was he was a scientist, and he ended up doing this experiment that gave him, bathed him in like these rays, these extraterrestrial rays or something, and it turned him from looking like a like me, I suppose, like a real loser, into someone that looks uncannily like Mister Sinister, but with a bit more of a face tattoo rather than a diamond on on uh, on his forehead, uh, and he. Is see you know he's he's now he's both uh, he's all famous for being extremely intelligent he's extremely handsome he's extremely strong but he's also now a rock star and he's most well known for this and he can has a sort of sway over people and he has like a bunch of of uh, lackeys in, in demon masks but then we turn out that these aren't actually masks these are these people's faces and. And they are they may not be uh, people at all, but that is uh, perhaps something for for a future podcast to uh, discover. But so this story, so we get a bit off track. It's mostly written by by Chuck Dixon, and he's seemingly responsible for the major aspects of the plot found in Road to No Man's Land Volume Two, with pencils by Jim Aparo and inks by David Roach. Uh, appearances from the wider DCU also. 
occur in this volume, Man, Bat, The Question, even my favourite underappreciated Green Lantern, Carl Rayner, gets a look in here. Admittedly, his story does just involve him uh, not willing to put the ring on to help a mugger, but decides to try help a mugger, help stop a mugging. And then he goes off to catch the mugger, uh, who's found his way to Gotham City, and so he goes there. Uh, he loses the ring. Batman takes the ring from him, saying, you know, not this my city, go away. Uh, then Carl Rayner gets stabbed. And uh, Batman, who, again, is up to his tricks in disguises that aren't really necessary. He's uh, infiltrated this, this criminal enterprise as some sort of uh, informant. Uh, but... Uh, of course, it's actually, it's actually Batman in disguise. Uh, anyway, they put a stop to this uh, this crime ring. Carl Rayner lives. He gets the ring back and he earns uh, Batman's trust. So I guess this takes place early in Carl Rayner's career on, on the Justice League. Uh, we also get uh, some setup for what is to come now in uh, No Man's Land. So all the routes in that of Gotham are shut off. So the bridges are, are destroyed. Some, if you've seen... Uh, the Dark Knight Rises, similar to what happens there, or they do do the uh, No Man's Land story in questionable quality TV show uh, Gotham. It was on Fox a few a few years back. They did the the No Man's Land a spin on No Man's Land towards the end of that show's run. Uh, the inmates of Arkham are also set free um, in what I thought was quite an interesting three part story focusing on. Jeremiah Arkham and uh, as he tries to hold things together with uh, less resources less staff uh, and and such thinking you know Arkham Asylum is his responsibility and he it's up to him to sort this all out so this was written by Alan Grant penciled by Mark Buckingham and inked by Robert Campanella uh, in those stories Obviously, you know, you've got no no funding, you've got no money, you've got no staff. The the inmates of Arkham, your two faces, your jokers, your killer crocs, your, your Victor Zazzes and, and such, you know, they're all starting to run amok here. And so Jeremiah tries to sort of let them get their anger out by organising some sort of fighting tournament where that all falls apart. And in the end, he realises that his only hope is to let these uh, insane people out of Arkham Asylum and into Gotham City and hoping that Batman and the Bat family can be the ones that can get these people back under control because he is no longer able. So we've got Nick Scratch, rock star, genius, strong man who manages to convince the government to uh, not support Gotham City. We've got the roots in and out of Gotham City completely destroyed and, and, and shut off. And we have also got the uh, inmates of Arkham Asylum set free on Gotham City. I feel like these are the three main foci uh, as we now enter No Man's Land. I mean, I could be completely wrong having not read it, but I feel like those are... They wouldn't have spent so much time setting all this stuff up if it wasn't going to be important later on. I have also, this past month, been watching the Kingsman films... Primarily because back in January, uh, The King's Man, the Kingsman prequel, came out. And then here recently it was released on Disney+. Plus, So I never went to see it in the cinema. So I thought, well, why not watch them all now? So I've seen uh, the first and the second Kingsman films uh, a number of times. So I think the first Kingsman film is great. And the second Kingsman film is very much a dramatic step down in, in quality. Uh... But, it, I mean, it's not bad. It's just a bit... Meh. I'm utterly indifferent towards it. I think they lose some of what was special about the first Kingsman film. They try and undo some of the important bits of that first film. But this number three, which is technically, I guess, number zero, set in World War One, it's not as good as the first film, but it is better than the second I'm not sure if that's damning it with, with uh, faint praise, but that is my, my opinion. Kingsman and the Secret Service is the best. Now we've got the Kingsman and then Kingsman and the Golden Circle. Uh, I believe there's going to be a third Kingsman film, like an actual third one rather than a prequel, in the coming years. Hopefully 
the Kingsman franchise continues on this upward trend rather than we're having a repeat of the Golden Circle. Okay, so the Kingsman uh, is based, and the whole Kingsman franchise is based off a series of graphic novels, The Secret Service Kingsman, written by Mark Millar. We talked about him last month. Uh, Co-plotted by Matthew Vaughan, uh, director of all three of the Kingsman films, with art by Dave Gibbons. It's inked by Dave Gibbons and Andy Planning, and of course lettered by Dave Gibbons and Angus McKee. If you don't know who Dave Gibbons is, you need to uh, sort that out. Uh, Dave Gibbons, famed comic book artist involved in some of the best comic books out there. And if you don't know what they are, I don't feel like it's my responsibility to tell you. It is your responsibility to go out there and learn. So this uh, the Secret Service is the first of three Kingsman books. What I didn't know is that there are three Kingsman books. Uh, I thought there was just one. So I've only read this one. I only own one. It's this one. And the plot is very loosely based on... Uh, very loosely what the first film was based on. It's not, it's not based on the first film. This came out way before. So a billionaire, there's this billionaire, and he's using phones to try and make people kill each other by sending out these radio waves that drive people insane. Uh... Uh, and they will kill each other in an attempt to save the planet from climate change. And there's this young boy from an impoverished council estate. His name is Eggsy, and he gets trained, so to speak, I suppose, to become a gentleman spy. So if you have seen the Kingsman films and you think, I'll now go back and read the source material, do bear in mind there are some big changes. One, the tone. The tone is very different. This is a lot more serious, I feel. It's not like, I don't know, something, it's not incredibly serious, I'm trying to think of a serious example, but it's not The Dark Knight or something like that, The Last Halloween or, or something, The Long Halloween even, uh, but it's not uh, on par with the Kingsman films in terms of, of, of comedy. Um, there is no Kingsman agency, they just spies for MI6. Uh, there's no code names. There's no Arthur, no Ganahad, no Merlin. None of that. There isn't even. There is a tailor. They go to a tailor shop, but it's just a tailor shop that sells suits. There's no secret tailor shop in which this agency is is run out of. I say they all work for MI6 and Colin Firth. The Colin Firth role, so Ganahad in the films, uh, is just Eggsy's uncle here, like an actual familial relation. Uh, but their function is the same. The he trains Eggsy to become this, this gentleman spy. It's very enjoyable still. You know, it's not... It's it's different from the film, as I said, but that's by no means a bad thing. It's very enjoyable and it's very quick. It's very short. So if you're looking for a quick read, uh, a light action-adventure romp, then I will heartily recommend The Secret Service Kingsman. And, of course, Dave Gibbons, as you may have suggested by my earlier rant, never disappoints. Dave Gibbons on top form here, as he always is. So there we go, that was some more 90s Fat Man. Although, you know, it's, as, as I said, it is improving. Road to No Man's Land Volume 2, better mm -hmm. than Road to No Man's Land Volume 1. And Mark Miller never disappoints with Art by Dave Gibbons. Kingsman, great. What's the Kingsman films? Two of them are fine. One of them is great <laughs> as well. Uh, but... You can do stuff outside of reading. You can, again, follow the show on Twitter at PhDReads. You can also follow Layered Butter at Layered Butter on Twitter at Layered underscore Butter on Instagram. Rodrigo, tell us. Around. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> at Layered underscore Butter on Twitter at Layered Butter on Instagram. And for go. the record, I, I do not hold this against you because I've told our, our co-founders that it's like whoever secured our social media handles and did not make it the same one on every platform is my absolute enemy right now. <laughs> Well, you can go and support Layered Butter. Rodrigo, tell us what is happening on the world of alternate movie posters. Yeah, I mean, there's been some brilliant pieces that I've been seeing come out. So make sure to check LayeredButter.com to see our, our weekly segments on Sundays about like some of our favorite pieces of collectibles and AMP that have come out. On the, the podcast front, the Layered Butter podcast, if you haven't checked us out, make sure to, to give us a search. Um, we had an interview with Film Junk, who uh, hold the Guinness Book of World Records uh, record for longest running movie podcast. Mm -hmm. And we spoke to two of the, the, the people from Film Junk. It's been really well received, so that was exciting. Um, this 
upcoming week, we are going to have, I think probably around the same time that this drops, uh, you can also find uh, the Layered Butter episode. We're going to have a full conversation about the Batman. So that's going to be exciting, I, I think. Like, that's that's going to be, I'm going to be excited to, to hear that one out. I think maybe by the time this episode drops, it may have already come out for a while, because I'm guessing it's going to be Sunday the 13th. Um, so in the past of when you're listening to this, but check it out if you want to have, Absolutely. if you want to hear more of my thoughts on, on the Batman. Absolutely. I will be doing that and I will go to the correct Twitter handle rather than, I don't know, looking at people that make types of butter, perhaps is what yeah, layered underscore butter is on Twitter. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, there you go. PhD reads, that's simple. Just, I am a PhD student and I read nice and nice and easy. So there you go. This was episode 25. Who believe that? 25 episodes of, of this. So here's to 25 more. Hooray. That's 25 months. That's another two years away. I won't even be a PhD student then. But that's that. That's a naming issue for, for years to come. I have a question for you. Do you think, and uh, I, I, I reserve the right to maybe change my mind, but do you think I should read Morning Glories by uh, Nick Spencer next month, or should I revisit Scott Snyder's Batman? Oh, see, I was going to say that you should read Moon Knight, because Moon Knight starts oh, on the 30th of March. No, that's so it. So there you that's go. That's the one. You'll be yeah. there. You've made, you've made the right choice. You can choice. watch Thank and read so at the same time. <laughs> But other than yes, that, I would I have agree. picked Snyder's Batman only because I've read it and therefore can have a bit more of an insight. Right. Okay. No, sounds good. You're right. I should read Moon Knight. I have them there. I've been wanting to look for a reason to to check them out. I'm going to do that. Well, there you go. You can come back in, uh, what month is it now? March. You can come back in April to hear Rodrigo's thoughts on Moon Knight, our, both our thoughts on the Moon Knight show. So I'll see you then. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.